Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our global conference series, the SALT Conference, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And there's no bigger idea in our view right now at SkyBridge uh, that's shaping the future than the digital asset space, the decentralized finance movement, and in particular, Bitcoin. So we're thrilled to welcome the great Michael Saylor back for his second appearance on Salt Talks. He's a man who needs no introduction, especially to those who have been following uh, the Bitcoin movement over the last year or so but I'll read you a little bit of his background anyway. Uh, Michael Saylor is a technologist, an entrepreneur, a business executive, a philanthropist, as well as being a best-selling author. He currently serves as the chairman of the board of directors and the chief executive officer at MicroStrategy. Uh, since co-founding the company at the age of 24, uh, Michael has built MicroStrategy into a global leader in business intelligence, mobile software, and cloud-based services. In 2012, he authored a great book called The Mobile Wave, How Mobile Intelligence Will Change Everything, which earned a spot on the New York Times bestsellers list. Uh, Michael attended MIT, receiving an SB in aeronautics and astronautics and an SB in science, technology, and society. And again, as you may know, he has uh, recently become a, a whale in the crypto space. He initially allocated uh, $425 million, I believe was his initial investment, into Bitcoin from the corporate treasury uh, balance sheet of MicroStrategy. He subsequently issued more convertible bonds and bought more Bitcoin. And I believe his stack now numbers in the multiple billions in terms of his Bitcoin ownership. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of SkyBridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. SkyBridge, as you may have seen as well, recently invested several hundred million dollars into Bitcoin, as well as launching a Bitcoin fund to provide a, a direct play for uh, investors to gain pure access to Bitcoin. Uh, Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with no further ado, I'll turn it over to Anthony for round two with Michael Saylor. Michael, thanks again for joining us. Uh, it's been quite a journey for us, as I know it's been for you. And uh, you, you go from Bitcoin skeptic to Bitcoin believer, and then there's this seismic eureka moment where all of a sudden you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, I understand what this is now. I understand why I need to be invested and why I'm at the front of a early stage project. I'm at the frontier of something. Can you take us through that odyssey that you you went through uh, from Bitcoin skeptic to Bitcoin believer, but then also putting uh, your money where your mouth is? Well, I think um, over the last decade, we had um, progressive monetary expansion and the level of 5% a year, but which was significant to people that were sensitive to it. But for people in the tech industry or people that were busy with some other part of their life, we could live with 5% monetary expansion uh, and still go about our jobs. And so I was a big tech enthusiast and I was really, uh, really uh, occupied by my business until we got to 2020. And in that context, everything I knew about Bitcoin for the first decade was like noise. 
like I know it's something interesting and there's some people that care a lot about it, but it's noise. And I'm really more concerned about what the next iPhone is going to be or what Facebook is going to do or the con uh, the Im implications of Amazon rolling over 15,000 retail companies. And, and those were all very exciting stories for a decade. And, uh, and then I think we got to 2020, we got the K-shaped recovery, Main Street locked down, Wall Street had a V-shaped recovery, the monetary expansion jumped from 5% to 20 or 25%. Now you couldn't ignore the fact that the, the money supply was expanding. Now, now, you could, now all of the interesting stories of the last decade, you know, the Amazon story is over. We know how that ends, right? They win. The Google story, the Apple story, the, the Facebook story, they're all over. We know how they end, right? It's pretty clear. They're going to go on to another, another stage, but it's not a technology play. Now it becomes about politics and society. And so now <clears throat> we all have a problem in 2020, the problem is the money supply is expanding. And then you realize if you're trying to make money doing it the 20th century way, you know, it, it's just really hard. And if you're trying to make money the 21st century way, you got to do it virtually. The virtual wave hit us. <clears throat> and so I would say I became really interested in Bitcoin uh, the second quarter of this year. And I realized that this had the potential to be digital gold. It felt like digital gold that no institutions had quite embraced, but a lot of early adopters had embraced. And everybody wants in an expansion, uh, expansionary economy where the money supply is expanding, you all want sound money. And the previous sound money for 5,000 years was gold, mostly sound, expanding two, 3% a year. Bitcoin is digital gold thermodynamically perfectly sound money, in theory on a sheet of paper of God designed gold with no imperfections, he would have designed Bitcoin. So it's like, well, this is too good to be true. You just got to figure out, you know, is it going to be hacked? Is it going to be banned? Is anybody else going to buy into it? What's the problem? Because it looks perfect. And, uh, you know, we, we got involved because we, not because it was elective. If I had a 5% problem, each year, I could have ignored it. But when it became a 20% problem, I couldn't ignore it. We were forced, you know, after March of 2020 to embrace the issue. So we got into it and we embraced it, not because we thought Bitcoin was risk-free. Bitcoin was nine, $10,000 a coin. There's a lot of controversy in April, May, June, <clears throat> even July, August. But we figured uh, the certainty of losing half your purchasing power over four years was enough of a, of, um, a, what is it? Enough compensation to justify taking the risk of doing something new, right? A guarantee. And that's why we got into it. The next six months, you're going to see the story, which is maybe it's digital gold. Maybe the institutions need this thing to, well, I guess some need it. So more of them need it. And then it goes to 20,000, 30,000 and 40,000. And I think as we enter 2021, you know, people's perception is rotated to, I guess it is digital gold and it's the newest institutional safe haven asset. And by the way, it looks to me like uh, monetary expansion is, is continuing. Everybody's got an asset inflation problem. It's top of mind for every investor. What are we going to do about it? And so that's how we kick off the year as uh, I speak to you. So, so uh, the uh, 
I was with a group of people. We've obviously launched our fund um, in good part thanks to your help and your intellectual gravitas and helping us get around to this. My my eureka moment alongside of yours was understanding something you said last time we were together about it being a digital network, a digital platform for money, similar to an Amazon for retail or say a Google for search and advertising or Facebook for social networking. Uh, But I was with what I would call the rat poison crew. Uh, It was a group of uh, uh, men and women, but mostly men in their 70s and 80s that were buying into the Warren Buffett idea that Bitcoin is rat poison. Now, Bill Miller said, well, it may be rat poison, but the rat might be fiat currency. Uh, So Bill is a believer like you and I, Uh, But one thing that keeps coming up repetitively, Michael, I have my take, but I really want to hear yours, is, well, what the hell is it? It's just a encrypted code. Uh, There's 21 million of them. Okay, so I get the scarcity. But why would that be worth anything if all it is is a code in the ether? And this is from the rat poison crew. And so your response to that would be, how did you get over that hurdle? Um, It's... It's uh, digital gold. Anybody could design code for digital gold, but is digital gold on the dominant monetary network in the world? So if I had an idea for Twitter and I thought I was going to launch a speech network, anybody could copy it. But at the point that everybody on earth joined Twitter and they all looked at Twitter for half an hour, an hour a day, you got 400 million people pouring 400 million hours of bandwidth per day into Twitter, then it's not the software anymore. Then it's a digital speech network. It's the dominant digital speech network for public speech. I think in the last decade, you saw dominant networks form for speech on Twitter. You saw a dominant video network in YouTube. You saw a dominant mobile network for Apple. You saw a dominant social network. You saw a dominant retail network and and Amazon. Each of these things gathered uh, the commitment of a billion people. And the, you know, Warren Buffett talks about brand. Warren Buffett would understand Coke. The, the, the power of the brand of Coca-Cola is if I obliterated every Coca-Cola plant and every bottle of Coke everywhere on earth, I couldn't get it out of the minds of 7 billion people. 7 billion people know that what a Coca-Cola is. And so the brand of, uh, of having that idea stuck in the minds of billions of people is very powerful. So Bitcoin is the brand of digital gold stuck in the minds of a billion people. But more importantly, it's, it's gathered hundreds of billions and now getting close to, what is it, 700 billion dollars worth of monetary energy. As that energy flows on that network, that's that's an incredible uh, dominant network effect. And on the other side of the network with the miners, you have billions and billions of dollars invested in special purpose hardware mining rigs decentralized everywhere in the world that has no purpose other than to run the digital gold network that is Bitcoin. And so you have massive hundreds of billions of dollars of monetary energy sunk onto a monetary network that is the brand. And and so in that regard, 
it has the same dominant inertial effect that uh, the Twitter or Facebook or or YouTube or Google have. In order to in order to replace it with a copy of the code, you have to displace the seven hundred billion dollars of monetary energy. But then again, what would be the motive for the seven hundred billion dollars to move? to Bitcoin version two. I mean, there really isn't one. So, so it takes on a life of its own. And as the price goes up, there's a, this is not just driven by Metcalf's laws. Metcalf's law says that the power of the network is the square of the number of people, the number of nodes on the network. That would be true if everybody on earth had the same amount of money. If everybody had $10, then Metcalf's law would be the rule. But this is driven by Newtonian laws of physics. That is, some people have a billion dollars. Some people have $10 billion. So if people weighed 10 billion pounds or a trillion pounds, they'd have a gravitational pull that is more than the person that weighs 100 pounds. And so the laws of gravity are, are flowing on this network. And as the price goes up, it's... It's kind of like all the mass is collapsing into a planetary body. The gravitational attraction is increasing. Therefore, everything that comes in the orbit of the, gra- of the planetary body is being sucked into the planet. And it's getting, it's getting stronger and stronger. As that price goes up, that, you know, Bitcoin is the one asset that as its price goes up, it is more attractive to investors, which is the opposite of a stock price, where as the price goes up, it looks more risky and less attractive to an investor. And, and it's a very subtle impact of a monetary network that's worth, worth understanding and dwelling on, I think. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, 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 you know, in people talking to me about it, I'm more comfortable with Bitcoin at 35, 40,000 a coin than I was at 20, in 2014 at $400 a coin because it didn't hit that escape velocity point that you're describing. It didn't get the full embrace of that network and the capitalization. And then, of course, uh, we've got places to store this now beyond the USB, you know, whether it's a place like uh, Fidelity Digital Assets or other homes for Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's now, in my opinion, gotten to that escape velocity akin to Twitter and Google. But you said something that uh, has never left me. I'm going to repeat or hopefully paraphrase what you've said. Uh, You said the first Bitcoin is the hardest one to buy. Once you own it, you realize that you don't own enough. Do you remember saying that? I want you to take us through that that thought pattern there. Well, I mean, first you have to, you have to, have a problem. If you, if you embrace the idea, you have a store of value problem because of a, a macroeconomic sensitivity that leads you on a quest for what's your store of value. Then you realize that the theoretical best answer is a crypto asset network that's decentralized, that, that, uh, that duplicates gold, that is um, deflationary. And that is Bitcoin. Then you have to get over all of your concerns about forking and hacking and banning and is it legal and what's the tax treatment and the like. Once you get past all those and you decide 
Yeah, Bitcoin is digital gold. It is the best safe haven asset uh, for the 21st century. Then the issue is, well, how do I buy it? And, you, know, you know, you can't buy it from traditional banks and wirehouses. You could pick up the phone and buy $100 million worth of a, a gold ETF in 10 seconds, 30 seconds. But buying $100 million worth of a Bitcoin ETF, well, there is none. You know, I, I hear rumors, you know, people say, well, there are a lot of banks where if you try to buy like GBTC or something, they either make you sign a disclaimer, they make you sign a form, or they tell you they won't sell it to you. So there's a lot of people, I guess, uh, what, 90, as we enter the year 2021, you might know better than me, but I'm guessing 95% to 99% of investors they don't have an easy on-ramp to buy this. It's a, it's a struggle for them. So you have to actually go through a search and look for an institutional grade uh, um, brokerage. And you either got to find a fund you trust and you either buy into it as a fund or you got to decide you're going to find an exchange you trust and you buy the underlying asset. And there are pros and cons to either of those. Once you find that, you, you know, if you're going to buy the underlying asset, you got to work through the issue of custody and who do I trust and will I self-custody and will I multi-sig self-custody with a 24-phrase seed key or, or um, will I use an institutional-grade custodian? And of course, that, that is to a certain extent, the beauty of Bitcoin is the crypto anarchist could literally buy a hundred million dollars of Bitcoin, put it on a cold, you know, on a, on a hardware wallet or memorize in their head and walk around with it. That's one extreme. And that keeps everybody honest because knowing that you could take custody of this stuff means that if you're a bank or a custodian, you can't abuse your customer. No one's going to take delivery of a hundred million dollars of gold and carry that around in their head. So that's, it's a nice theoretical benefit, but as a practical matter, 99% of the people don't want to self-custody $100 million worth of this stuff. They don't trust themselves as much as they trust an institution. So, so that means they have to go through this exercise of, do I buy it and custody it with an institution or do I buy a fund, right? And a fund kind of solves the problem because I don't have to trade it. I don't have to buy it. I don't have to custody it. I don't have to worry about all these headaches. I just wire my money to a fund. They buy it for me. And then I get the economic interest in it. Um, one way or the other, I think it probably took me four weeks of screaming and begging and pleading to get through the AML KYC, you know, paperwork process with, my first, my first uh, custodian and broker, and it took me another four weeks. So it took me eight weeks for the next one. And I won't talk about who it is because it doesn't really matter. It just is, it's a four to eight week journey. Right. You know, and uh, it's getting easier now. But my thought throughout the entire process was, wow, God designed gold in cyberspace, and that's exactly what I need. I need digital, perfect gold in cyberspace. And uh, then I thought, gee, it's really hard to buy this stuff. And I was irked. And then I thought, this is great because it's so hard to buy this stuff. It must be undervalued because everybody else that comes behind me is going to pay more for this. So I'm just going to go ahead and rush through, go through the, jump through the hoops 
get the accounts and I'm going to buy this stuff. And I remember I was, I was buying it when it was like $9,400 a coin. And, and I was thinking, oh, I got to finish buying everything I'm going to buy because when I wake up tomorrow morning, maybe other intelligent investors are going to realize that this is God's gift to the investor in the year 2020. And they're all going to buy it. And they're going to double the price. And I really, literally, I went to bed with anxiety, worried that, that when I woke up, the price was going to shoot through the roof because people were going to realize that this is the perfect safe haven engineered store of value. And when they did, they were all going to buy it. And, and luckily, I had a bit of time. But, you know, the truth is, you know, once, once people started to realize that it, it happened pretty fast, right? Yeah. <laughs> once well, they figured it out. Yeah, no, you know, and it, it's happening. And obviously, we both think we're at the exponential front of a uh, of, of a frontier. So clearly, if it if it gets to be the market capitalization of gold, the opportunities here, despite the volatility, uh, everyone will look quite prescient if uh, we're correct in our assessment of that. Uh, the regulators, uh, and particularly the bank, the bank of uh, the ECB, the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, uh, about a day ago made some comments. Uh, she basically said that, quote unquote, funny business and some interesting and totally reprehensible money laundering activity has taken place with Bitcoin. Uh, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department, fiat currency producers, for many obvious reasons, Michael, do not like Bitcoin. Uh, and so obviously Mike Novogratz responded and said, well, the banks have paid more in fines hundred plus billion dollars of fines in the last decade than anything that's happened on the Bitcoin network. But what's your reaction to regulators, regulators resistance, the speed bumps uh, that could be ahead of Bitcoin related to the old guard, if you will, or the old monetary system and its regulators rejecting uh, what you and I would think of as a more perfect monetary system? You know, I think um, everybody, should uh, calm down and not overreact to this. I think that in the crypto community, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, ideolo- ideologues. You know, I, I lovably uh, you know refer to them as like crypto anarchists. They're they're libertarians and they're you know they're sure they don't like inflation but they don't really like taxation much either and the idea that uh that uh and they don't like regulation and they're ready for if all if all banks disappeared and all governments disappeared they're ready for that to and they'd be fine with that um i actually think you know i've i've seen them sift through uh you know the media overreacts to this i think some of the critics overreact to this i've seen them sift through like the writings of one uh politician and say you know like uh 8 years ago for like one minute in a in a testify test you know in a hearing they said three sentences that looked kind of negative toward bitcoin and that we hate them well I, you know my reaction to this is um you know, like everybody's buying Bitcoin on um, on regulated exchanges. You know, you know what it's like to get like a, a New York regulated license to sell Bitcoin. They all have to comply with KYC. They all have to comply with AML, anti-money laundering regulations, know your customer regulations. And, and uh, 
when she says, well, we're concerned about it from a money laundering point of view, the implication is you're going to see large banks and brokerages that are already complying with AML and, and KYC regulations that will continue to comply with those things. And all of the money that's currently sitting in Apple stock and Amazon and sovereign debt and cash accounts and real estate indexes that is subject to AML and KYC regulations will continue to be subject to it. And it's going to float into some digital gold. And, and should, you know, should the central regulators decide that banks have to comply with AML and KYC regulations with regard to a crypto asset in the same way, that they would comply with those with regard to a stock asset, a real estate asset, a bond asset, or a commodity asset. I, I don't think it's earth shattering. I, I don't think it's going to be negative uh, for the industry. In fact, I think it's the opposite, which is, for example, you know, until we saw uh, exchanges like Fidelity, like Coinbase, uh, get uh, get proper licenses from U.S. regulators. Neither you nor I would be buying Bitcoin. <laughs> now, none of the institutions are buying Bitcoin through unregulated exchanges. So, I mean, when when a regulator says we should make sure it's properly regulated, I I think that people uh, can overreact to that. I think that every bank in the world holding all the money, well, all the money in the United States is in regulated uh, brokerages and exchanges, and it's just fine. And I don't think Bitcoin needs to be unregulated to be successful. I think Bitcoin just needs to be better than gold to be successful, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, if you, if you picked up the phone and called your bank and said, I want you to ship $100 million worth of gold on a pallet to a, you know, to a dark you know, private wallet in sub-Saharan Africa, and I want you to do it in the next 30 minutes and don't report it to the government, I don't think that would be happening either, right? So I, I think there's an, people are very sensitive. They don't need to be. I think uh, it's all going to work itself out just fine. And to the extent that we have regulated entities that are dealing in Bitcoin, I think it's just going to accelerate the stampede of institutional money into Bitcoin. Well, I think, I think you, you, you make a brilliant case. Uh, Anchorage Digital Bank was recently approved as the first federally regulated digital asset bank. Michael, what do you think the impact of that news is? I, you know, I think it's, uh, it's going to be catalytic to other banks. I, I think what's going on right now is every bank, all of the major banks that um, that don't handle Bitcoin, they 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 won't let you buy it. They don't have a fund. They don't have a an on ramp. They don't have a custody relationship. I think they're all looking at this, saying we're falling behind. There are going to be massive outflows of capital from traditional banks into crypto banks and, and, and Bitcoin friendly banks. It's already happening. It's going to accelerate. It's going to get to the CEO level of all the major banks on Wall Street. They probably got committees looking at this right now. They'll move, you know, at, at institutional speed and some will move faster than others. But, uh, but the writing is on the wall and, uh, and these are kind of more warning shots and sparks 
that that uh, tell you the world is changing and uh, and people that want to keep up with are going to have to change with it. Well, you know, I I uh, I know Gary Gensler pretty well. It's being reported that he's the new SEC chairman. Uh, he taught a course on the blockchain at MIT, your alma mater. Uh, do you know Gary? Uh, whether you do or you don't, but what is your regulatory outlook in the United States coming from the SEC? Do you have a view there one way or the other? Um, I don't know him. Uh, so uh, I, I suppose his appointment is auspicious uh, for, for Bitcoin in general. I'm a big fan of MIT professors. I did my thesis at the MIT School of Management. So we have that relationship. Um I'm I'm a big supporter of of MIT's uh, DCI um, digital currency initiative and their security initiatives and and um, they think highly of him. So those are all good. Um, my view on uh, on regulation: the most important thing can be boiled down to one sentence. Bitcoin is deemed as property by the SEC. Period. <laughs> That's the single most important understanding. Uh, Bitcoin is property by the SEC. The IRS deems it as property. If you understand how it's going to be taxed, long-term, short-term capital gains, if you understand how it's going to be regulated, in this particular case being property versus security is, is a very bright line. And, uh, and it means that it is not regulated, right? Per the securities laws. I think those two things are 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 critical, and and by the, way, it, the designation of property by the IRS means Bitcoin is not going to be a day to day currency in a medium of exchange. It makes no sense to do a, a million transactions a day with something that generates a million capital gains tax bills. It, you know, it break every accounting system. It would break every tax system. So so that decision by the IRS was critical. And the decision by the SEC to make it property means that it is it is appropriate to serve as uh, as a thermodynamically sound money or thermodynamically sound monetary index. You can an asset class. Um, if it was a security, it would not be an asset class. Uh, it couldn't be. But uh, with Bitcoin as property, there's no reason why it shouldn't take its place next to the Dow, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, and, and other monetary indexes, you know, as an asset class, it transcends the limitations of a company or corporate security. And that is the single most important thing that, that we could have on our mind, right? It's the thing that allows a senator to, uh, to educate Congress on Bitcoin. It's the thing that allows you to have a congressional caucus that supports Bitcoin. It's the thing that allows uh, someone in media to have an opinion on it. If you know, you can't imagine a senator getting uh, getting elected and saying, "I really think that XX stock, you know, is a better store of value than the dollar," and I'm gonna I'm gonna explain to Congress why this stock is a better store of value than the dollar. Right? You could never say that because that's a security. Right. And, and it's a thousand times less powerful. And ultimately, by the way, the designation of Bitcoin as property, uh, while, they are, while they're silent on the next 6,000 cryptos, 
is incredibly important, right? One of the reasons Bitcoin has a network effect is because for you to actually have a digital safe haven asset, it needs to be global property. It can't be a global security. There's no way that any company or any publicly traded company, no matter how big and powerful, will ever have the same uh, gravitas and, and the, same, um, the same prospects as Bitcoin as digital property. And it's always going to be a question looming over every other crypto, right? Like, you know, like you can see the challenges of Ripple, right? If another sure. crypto is deemed as a security, it completely is devastating to its prospects as the base layer of a monetary network. And that's really important for investors. Yeah, well, I, I think that that is the, that is the genius of the, uh, of the, of the design. Are you worried that uh, the Satoshi Nakamoto or the group that created Bitcoin, or if there is a Satoshi is sitting on a tremendous amount of coins that could potentially flood the market? Is that, something that you worry about, that comes up in a lot of question and answer sessions with me. No, I'm not worried. Uh, I, I think that, uh, that Bitcoin is an ideally designed monetary network with a lot of rational incentives, right? And, and uh, first of all, I don't think Satoshi's coming back ever. I don't think we're gonna hear anything from a Satoshi for the rest of our lifetime. Uh, but second, you know, uh, it's there's a lot of uh, a lot of like FUD in the crypto industry, and a lot of times it comes from other other crypto assets, you know, other digital assets where people are just throwing this out. You know, maybe Satoshi will dump you know billion. People will actually post on Twitter that maybe I'm going to dump all of my crypto and tank the market. And I read, I think, who are these people? Like. You know, you think Jeff Bezos is going to dump all of his Amazon to destroy the Amazon stock and what, you know, whoever did an irrational thing just to like spite someone. I think there's a lot of that, that that goes around. You see your fair share of Satoshi will come back and destroy the market. The, you know, Dr. Evil will get a quantum computer and destroy the market. Uh, someone's going to print a trillion dollars of tether and destroy the market. And none of these things make any sense to me, but, but, I, but one of the, the dynamics is in an unregulated environment, people seem to think they can get away with injecting those rumors. And so you get a lot more of those rumors get injected. I, you know, I, I just think it's irrelevant. Not, by, by the way, let me make one more point. You could sell a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin over the course of a week without moving the market. So, yeah, no, of course. No, it's, it's, deep, it's deeply liquid. So uh, we, we've got a few more moments with you. I'm going to turn it over to the, uh, the millennial who thinks he has better hair than me, Michael, which he obviously doesn't. Just take a look. You can see that he doesn't have better hair than me. Uh, but we're going to turn it over to John Dorsey to take some of these outside uh, questions that we've got coming in. Go ahead, John. All right. The big difference between your and my hair is that I didn't put shoe polish in mine this morning. So well, someday you will. Okay, so don't be so self-righteous about Ouch. that. Well, we'll 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 see what you look like when you're 150 years old, like me. Yeah, so be. But go ahead, fire away. And yeah, Michael, it's great to have you back on Salt Talk. So we get a lot of questions about you know, your decision at MicroStrategy to invest, you know, your corporate balance sheet into Bitcoin. Square did the same thing. 
Have you talked, without naming the companies, have you talked to other corporate treasurers who have looked at what you've done and said, wow, uh, could you show me the playbook to how you got that done? I think interest from companies uh, for the ever since we came out publicly and, and started talking uh, in like September, I've had nonstop uh, set of conversations with corporations and, and executives and, and large investors on this subject. And I think interest keeps building. And I've noticed that, you know, it, it built in September and October for a bit, and then it, it ramped up in December, and now it's ramped up much more in, in January. And as a, you know, I say tongue in cheek to Anthony, you know, as, he, as the price goes up, you know, the asset becomes more attractive and the risk goes away. Um, I think I'll say one more point on that, John. I think it's becoming increasingly clear to people that if you're a company carrying cash on your balance sheet, it's a liability and, if, and Bitcoin is an asset. <clears throat> and to be clear with that, I mean, cash, cash instruments, uh, sovereign debt, anything that's cash or cash like, it's not going to appreciate in purchasing power by 15% per year. And so right. if you expect a 15% uh, asset inflation rate, then none of these cash-like instruments will keep up. And, and you got to assume that over 10 years, you're going to lose 75% of your purchasing power. So $100 billion in cash is going to be $75 billion of shareholder value destroyed with the, with the conventional fiat-based treasury strategy. On the other hand, if you, if you convert that cash into Bitcoin, Bitcoin is, you know, we, we debate, is it going up 15% a year, 100%? You know, when we had the, the, the three-day crash of this week, you know, and everybody declared Bitcoin dead, I, I pointed out facetiously, well, all that proves is that Bitcoin is not going to go up at an annualized rate of 1,500% per year for more than one month at a time, right? It was going up at 15x per year for that month. So it's, it's clear it's, it's appreciating uh, versus cash. And whether it's appreciating at 10%, 20%, 50%, 100, 200, 300, doesn't really matter because the number is positive and the number is likely going to beat the cost of capital. So I, I think the trend you're going to see this year is you're going to see more and more uh, corporate cash rotate into Bitcoin. And uh, that's, you know, that's yeah, just kind of yeah, old. Yeah. An interesting comment that I see some from some crypto influencers on social media is that you know think about Bitcoin not as a currency you can think about it sort of as an asset but really it's a savings account you know it's a it's a way for you to park your cash in a in an asset or or a commodity that that has a, a little bit more uh, long term bullish prospects than something like the U.S. dollar which macro policies are uh, you know pushing down upon. I want to talk about I want to talk about this virtual conference you have coming up February 3rd and 4th you're hosting a virtual conference called Bitcoin for Corporations to build on what you were talking about before why did you decide to host this event and what type of interest are you seeing in people that are looking to learn more you know we have thousands of corporate customers and and ever since we announced our bitcoin strategy we've had unsolicited people asking us how do you do this and they've got issues Tell us about the legal issues. Tell us about the accounting issues. Tell us how we how we buy this stuff. How do we store it safely? 
And uh, after getting so many requests, we decided we should just host a conference, which will be an accelerated, uh, uh, accelerated two-day crash course in how corporations can plug their balance sheet or their P&L into Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin's a monetary network, so you can grow your company with it. Like Square and PayPal are obviously doing that, but I mean... So is Skybridge, right? You can offer funds, you can offer mobile apps, you can offer insurance policies, you can build indexes. So one way, uh, one thing you can do is grow your company and improve your products and services. The other thing you can do with it is plug your treasury into it and rotate cash, uh, which is a liability into Bitcoin as an asset. And that's a way to either create or preserve shareholder value. Um, I don't think it was on the top of people's minds in um, in February of 2020, in March of 2020, the world changed. Then we all sorted through this issue. Now, as we look at February 2021, every corporation on earth is starting to be sensitive to this store of value problem. Their cash is is um, is a shareholder liability, not a shareholder asset. They've got a fiduciary challenge, but it's a, it's a it's a it's a scary new thing. So we need to get some education and Bitcoin for corporations is a quick, easy way for people to get educated. You know, we've curated a bunch of content. We're going to put all of our proprietary uh, content into the public domain and give it away to people that show up to the conference. And, and uh, you know, that's million dollars plus millions of dollars of legal accounting, due diligence, jumping through hoops, took us two months to do it all. And uh, we figured it's, stack of thousand thousands of pages you ever see a, a 82 page board memo to explain the store of value due diligence search and break down silver versus gold versus real estate versus bond indexes versus stock indexes versus every crypto versus bitcoin and in, in such a fashion that everyone could get comfortable they considered the risks that's the kind of memo that maybe you don't want to have your lawyer write at $500 an hour, $1,000 an hour. So we figure we just give it away to the world as a public service. Uh, and uh, I'm just, um, I'm very impressed at the, at the surge of interest. I think it's going to be a pretty big conference and hopefully we'll help a thousand companies or more come up to speed on this and figure out what to do next. Well, as a dedicated cyber hornet and in the spirit of Bitcoin's open source uh, origins, that's great that you're sharing all that information uh, in an open source way, really valuable information. Uh, we're going to leave it there, Michael. We're going to do more of these talks with you, hopefully, in the future. And we would encourage, if you are an executive at a corporation and you're watching this SALT talk, which we have a lot of corporate executives do watch, we would encourage you to participate in that conference with Michael on February 3rd and 4th, Bitcoin for Corporations. You know, the way we see it, uh, the retail market got involved in Bitcoin years ago. Now you're seeing people like yourself, corporate treasuries. You're seeing hedge funds like Skybridge and other entities starting to get involved in the space. I think you could start to see sovereigns start to get more involved in the space. And you're seeing insurance companies. So it's just a, a wave of bigger and bigger players that are getting involved in the space that are that are helping with that uh, to accelerate Metcalf's law, as you talked about earlier. But Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Anthony, do you have a final word for Michael before we let him go? Well, we of course we want to get you back, Michael. As you know, we're building our uh, our Bitcoin position. Uh, we're closing in, as I said, on four hundred million dollars. Our fund is off to a very strong start. Uh, just a reminder of people, it's seventy five basis points. We think that's a very attractive price 
as Michael was mentioning about the storage and the ease of use and, you know, having Ursa Young audit our positions and so forth, we just think it's a an interesting delivery mechanism for high net worth individuals. So you can go to the skybridgebitcoin.com website for more details there. Uh, we'll certainly be helping you any way that we can, Michael, to evangelize the story to other CEOs, corporate CEOs, corporate CFOs, et cetera. And thank you so much again for joining SALT. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. All the best. If you need any hair dye, Michael, I have a stash at my house, according to John Darcy. So just keep that in mind. You got I always it. have to get my digs in. <laughs> but thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's SALT Talk. Uh, it's been great to grow our community to include more people that are interested in digital assets, whether they're invested in Bitcoin today or crypto curious, as we like to say. Uh, we, we've enjoyed diving into that community and obviously uh, our Bitcoin investments um, came at a very interesting time, we'll say, in the market. So thank you for joining us. Just a reminder, we're going to have a whole series of crypto and digital asset and Bitcoin SALT talks in 2021. It'll be a regular feature uh, within the broader SALT talks brand. So you can sign up for all of those future SALT talks at salt.org backslash talks. And you can sign up for our entire archive of SALT talks at salt.org backslash talks backslash archive, including our first conversation uh, with the great Michael Saylor. Uh, please follow our YouTube channel. We're up to almost 10,000 subscribers. It's something we started during the pandemic. You know, we, we are known for our in-person conferences, but the opportunity during the pandemic to do these digital webinar type of events has been extremely gratifying for us. And we're starting to build up our digital presence. So we have great resources there on our YouTube channel. You can watch all the episodes there. Please follow us on social media as well. We broadcast a lot of these talks on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. So please follow us there. And please tell your friends about Salt Talks. We love growing our community. And we hope to see many of you at our in-person conferences, which we'll have an announcement on that in the next couple of weeks about our next in-person conference, which should be very exciting. I think everybody is chomping at the bit uh, to get some in-person interaction after what we've all gone through with the pandemic. But on behalf of the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We'll see you back here again next week on Salt Talks. 